This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'm really glad to see you. Uh, five minutes before the service, it wasn't clear that there wouldn't be more than five or six of us, but uh, resurrection happens, it seems. Uh, if you're wondering where most people are, they're uh, at a retreat in Laurelville, and uh, next week I'm sure this place will be rocking even more than it is today. So uh, thank you for being here. The job of a preacher, it is sometimes said, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, the passage from James that we read this morning has lots of both of those things. Uh, lots of comfort and lots of, well, affliction, well, challenge, anyway, let's put it that way. The passage from James divides really neatly into, or more or less neatly into three units. The first unit is addressed to the rich, first six verses. The next verses, verses seven to 11, are addressed to the poor. Then there's a, a, a verse about truthfulness, and then at the end, there is a passage about healing, and it's healing from sickness and from sin. Benjamin Franklin said that there are only two things that are sure in this life, death and taxes, uh, money and mortality, we might say, and the two first, the first two sections of this passage certainly talk about those two things, money and mortality. Verses 1 to 6 of James 5 is pretty rough. It's, uh, it's difficult reading. Let me remind you. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's pretty rough stuff. The first three verses call the rich to mourn and weep. It's not actually a call to repentance. It's a prophecy about what is going to happen to the rich. Ron Sider, an Anabaptist theologian, tells a story 
uh, of this passage once being read to a group of Christian pastors. But the reader did not attribute the words to James or to the New Testament. The reader said that these words were written by an anarchist named Emma Goldman, a Lithuanian Jew who lived in the late 19th century and died in 1940. Although Goldman had already been dead for some years, the clergy didn't know that, and in their outrage against this passage, they began to announce her and call for her to be deported. I don't know which is sadder. Their denunciation of someone for criticizing the rich or the fact that they didn't recognize James chapter 5. This was a, a group of clergy. Similarly, a Latin American theologian named Jose Miguez Benino reports that in one congregation in Latin America where this passage was read, it was a wealthy congregation, half of the congregation left the church while it was being read. James' words to the rich are hard-hitting. No punches are pulled here. Like an Old Testament prophet, James announces judgment and destruction. Uh, I say like an Old Testament prophet. Listen, for example, to Amos. This may have been one of James' models. Amos chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the weak. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. James, it seems, stands in that same tradition of Old Testament prophets who cry out for justice. But perhaps James learned to care about justice closer to home. Isn't James Jesus' brother? There's a, there's a Christian community, a Christian comedian named uh, Michael Jr. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's worth Googling. He's quite funny. But he, he thinks about James being the younger brother of Jesus and what it would have been like to grow up as the younger brother of Jesus. You can imagine the dinner table and Mary and Joseph saying, James... Why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> At one point, Michael, Michael Jr. says, you know, James really looked up to his older brother and he followed him around all, everywhere. He followed him around everywhere Jesus went. One day, James almost drowned. Uh, somebody got it. Well, maybe, maybe James did learn some things at the feet of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot serve God and money. Or the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, is the story of a, a young man who comes to Jesus and he wants to know how to inherit the kingdom. And Jesus says, take all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And the young man went away disheartened, it says, because he had many possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Or Luke, Jesus lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I think James may have learned some of what we read in the fifth chapter from his older brother. Verse 4, give the reasons for the judgment coming on the rich. And that is that the cry of the poor has come to the ears of the Most High. God has heard what the poor have been praying, how they've been crying and complaining to God. It's very reminiscent of the book of Exodus where the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt and they cry out and God hears their cry and delivers them. In verses 5 and 6, James says, you lived in luxury while you oppressed your workers. And this is how James says it, is a paraphrase. You oppressed your workers to death. James calls them murderers. Now, I think we could probably find many parallels between the rich farmers that James uh, warns in this prophecy and things that happen in our modern world. It wouldn't take long to come up with a long list of how the poor in our world are oppressed. Sweatshops in underdeveloped countries that manufacture our clothing comes to mind as an obvious case. Vaccine hoarding might be another one. My native Canada has purchased enough vaccine to vaccine everyone in Canada five times. And yet, in many countries of the world, they are struggling to get 1% of the population vaccinated for COVID-19. Reports I'm hearing from my friends in Kenya 
that in the poorer parts of the country, people are just collapsing on the street and dying, and nobody knows why. Here, vaccines are expiring and being discarded, while countries close by in the Caribbean and Latin America struggle to find enough vaccines to inoculate a small percentage of the population. We could go on. There are lots of other cases we could make. If I were to say that verses 1 to 6 did not apply to us, to, to me, I would, not be, I would be guilty of comforting the comfortable. Most of us here this morning fit into James' category of the rich. We may not be conscious of how our lifestyle affects the poor. We may want to close our eyes to the spiritual implications of our economic choices. But, says James, we do so at our peril. But there is good news even for the rich. There's an interesting parallel between this passage and a passage in the Old Testament. In this passage, James doesn't tell the rich to repent. He just announces their judgment. In the Old Testament, there's a little book called Jonah. God, God calls Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh. Eventually, Jonah doesn't want to go and he tries to escape. But eventually, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And his announcement is simply this. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he goes outside of the town and sits on a hill and waits for what he hopes will be the destruction of Nineveh. But Nineveh repents. They weren't given the option, but they repent. The king says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. And God does. God withholds his judgment on Nineveh, to Jonah's dismay. Perhaps there is a chance for repentance, even though it's not offered in these verses in James. Verses 7 to 11 of James 5 uh, change the atmosphere almost completely as James addresses the poor. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. It is, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against another, so that you may be, not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In addressing the rich, James looks to the final judgment and warns about their peril. The poor also are advised to look at the future final judgment. 
For the poor, however, the coming of the Lord is something to look forward to, not something to dread. The Lord is at hand, James says, so be patient, verses 7 and 8. Be steadfast, verse 11. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, verse 12. There are some gentle warnings here in verse 9. James says to the poor, do not grumble. But the main message to these poor is patient endurance. Well, why is this? Some scholars think that the poor James is writing to may be on the verge of rebellion. In verse 6, he says that the poor do not resist you. It could be translated, does, do they not resist you? Either way, there is more than a hint of protest in these words. And have we not seen protest in the last year and a half, two years? Sadly, Black Lives Matter protests often turned violent, not because the organizers wanted them to, but because hotheads prevailed. On January 6th, there was an attempted insurrection which ended up uh, attempting to uh, take over the capital of this country in which numerous people died. And now, what about now? There are protests on airplanes. There are fistfights over whether or not to wear a mask in a restaurant. There is harassment and violence and threats at school board meetings. Our society, it seems, is on edge. What does James say? James says, do not grumble. Be patient like a good farmer. Remain steadfast. In other words, James says, violence will only make for more violence. A few years ago when my wife and I were living in Ethiopia, we had one of the recurring times of violence in the area where we were living. This was often ethnic violence. It usually happened in February or March when the temperatures got up to, regularly got up to 120 degrees during the day and people were on edge just because of the weather. And they seemed to want to find somebody to blame. Employment in the Gambella region was about 10%, not unemployment, employment was about 10%. Most people tried to make a living by subsistence farming, but in the middle of dry season, it was often very little to eat. Well, during this one time of violence, the largest Protestant denomination in the area got together, the leaders got together. Now, they were divided. Half of them were from one ethnic group and half were from another ethnic group, but the leaders decided that they would do something to try to hold off the grumbling which had turned to violence. And so they walked from the headquarters of one part of the church, which was one ethnic group, to the headquarters of the other part of the church, which was another ethnic group. 
They walked through the town singing and praying. And when they got to their destination, the leaders of these two diverse ethnic groups washed one another's feet. It was a wonderful witness to what Jesus can do. The violence calmed down. Well, James goes on, and it looks like he's changing the subject completely in verses 13 to the end. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Verses 1 to 11 are mostly about money and about mortality. Verses 13 to 20 are mostly about healing restoration. Sickness and sin are not always directly related. So when James says, if anyone has sinned, they will be forgiven when talking about praying for healing for sickness, it doesn't mean it's that the, that the sickness was necessarily directly related to sin. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who had been born blind and his disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says that's the wrong question. But there are times when our lifestyles will lead to sickness. That, that's a reality. Sometimes sin does lead to sickness. But James says there's a remedy. There's a Christian community who can come around and support and lay hands on the sick person and pray for them that they will be raised up. There's a Christian community that can restore sinners and bring them back into a restored life in the community. The goal, James says, is new life, health, Restoration, healing, forgiveness, even salvation is one of the words he uses. Perhaps the best word to sum all this up is a Hebrew word, shalom, peace. Some think the end of James is rather odd. It looks like after talking about money, uh, the abuse of the, that comes from the tongue, uh, showing partiality, doing good works, all these major themes in the book of James, suddenly, instead of summarizing 
what, what he's been talking about all through the book, which is what we would expect at the end of a letter like this, James is suddenly talking about healing and forgiveness. But perhaps that's the point. Perhaps that's exactly why James has the ending he has. That using the tongue badly, that abusing the poor, that a wrong relationship with money, that not doing the good works that God calls us to do, perhaps all of those things are best summed up by saying, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church who will lay hands on him and pray for him that he will be saved, that he will be healed. If anyone has sinned, they will be forgiven. Perhaps that's the most appropriate conclusion that James could have come up with. Perhaps James is thinking of something his older brother said at one point. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Let us pray together. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening for your voice. Help us to know how you are calling us to new life. Restore us, not just here in this congregation. Restore us in our society to a place of health. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.